So glad you're with us this morning at Genesis Community Church. My name's Hans. I get to serve as one of the pastors. And if you're new, welcome. If you're newish, welcome. If you're old, welcome. Or if you're oldish, welcome. All of you are welcome. Very glad you're here. And, um, and we have, this is the post-lightning strike Sunday. I was emailing with a guy this week and just joking about it. And he's like, he's like is your ministry going to be divided up into pre- and post-lightning strike? I said, I hope so. I hope that there's, you know, like the guy in the Spider-Man movies, you know, um, Electro, I don't know his name, Jamie Foxx's character. I could be like, you know, him, Uh, but like as a preacher, pastor guy. So I'm very glad that you're with us. And I want to thank anybody who kind of helped out. We had a bunch of folks around Wednesday night, our friend uh, Chris from Redeemer came by and uh, Wednesday and Saturday and just helped us find all the potential problems that happen when a lightning strike shows up. So uh, this is a lift over there. This is not, I thought about preaching from it. Um, You know, get it up in the air. You know, be like a Puritan and just be like, everybody, uh, you know, but didn't do that. We put it over in the corner. I said, we probably need to put a curtain over it. It, You know, it had this big industrial thing. Beep, beep, beep. So... Didn't do that, but for the most part, have everything at least in working order, if not, you know, in line to be repaired. So grateful for that. It was kind of a fun week to figure out how the lightning got in the building and what it, you know, what it all affected. Uh, So we think we have a a pretty good idea on both of those things. Always fun, though, to track it down. You'd be like, does this still work? Does this still work? These are the classes they don't teach you in seminary, like how to track down, trace the problems that happened from a lightning strike. Uh, so probably needs like four courses because we're kind of dumb there in seminary. So it's like, so if it breaks this, does it break that too? But that's not what we're here today to do. We wanted to get operational for Sunday, be sure things worked appropriately uh, because we're getting back into the Gospel of John, as you have seen. We're 18. I told one of my kids that we're back in the Gospel of John. He was like, ugh, we've been John forever. Can we please, can we please stop? And uh, I was like, well, maybe the, next, maybe the next sermon series won't be as long as the Gospel of John. And, uh, but I hear you, man. I hear you. You're going, man, that's like, you got John fatigue. Like, I'm hearing John everywhere. But we're going to be in John until like 2025, and then after that, we'll figure out where to go. Not, no, not till 2020. Yeah, you guys might figure out where to go if we're in there until 2025. Like, uh, you know, maybe a church that doesn't do that long. Um, so... There's something, as we're in chapter 18, we're going to see several things. There are three sermons in chapter 18, and we'll see Jesus being the same while everybody else is being different. But I think one thing that, that I, I kept looking at, especially in today's passage, was just, for me, how hard it is at times to stand amazed, to, to really just be in awe of something. I don't know if awe, A-W-E, not A-W, like aww, like not that, awe, uh, like how hard it is to to stand in awe of something, to be surprised by something, to just be captivated by it. I think it's difficult for a lot of us. Uh, we we kind of move on. You know, movie budgets get bigger and bigger and bigger, and so, you know, it's like, like, yeah, I mean, I'm used to that. CGI can make anything happen, and so, like, it's not even that spectacular anymore. I mean, I was talking to my cousin this week, and he's like, man, I, I've been ruined by bad special effects. Like, these, you know, Marvel movies I don't even care about anymore, but, like, Avatar 2, that's where it's at. And I'm like, dude, I don't know. I don't know any of those things, but, like, we just, it's very hard for us to be amazed. It's very hard for us to be amazed. I think it's a struggle for most of us because, like, we've kind of seen it all, or we feel like we've seen it all, and so we don't just stop 
and go, man, look at that. Now, there are a couple of interruptions that we might have in life that would do something like that. Scenery can do that from time to time. Maybe you're a scenery person, and you just find a, a beautiful vista, and you look out over it, and it just looks phenomenal. Uh, everybody, as I, I have too, everybody talks about the Grand Canyon and how it doesn't look real. Like, you're kind of like, I can't, you know, I said it looks like a painting because it's just so deep, and that's a real thing that your mind tries to do. It tries to make sense of the depth and the imagery and the colors, and so it's doing something. When that happens, we saw it, and it was about 30 degrees outside, so it wasn't as captivating for us. Um, we, it was like, it's cold. Like, let's take the picture. Let's prove that we were here. My brother-in-law was like, do you want to go down to another spot and see more of it? I was like, nope, we're going to get in the car and go an hour back to Flagstaff because I think we're pretty happy with the two stops we made. We're freezing, and the snowman was made, and we're cold, and, like, we're good. So, you know, like, even then, I, did, I didn't want to stay amazed that long because I wanted to go back to the warm hotel room. Like, that's, like, that's, that's really what happened. Um, freezing and moving on. Uh, birth of a child, yours or someone else's, like, children are just cool. And so you go, this is awesome, right? Like, 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 and that's, like, one of the one time we kind of mean it in more of its lexical form of awesome. Like, we use awesome a lot, and that's fine, but very, very infrequently do we use it as it had often been meant, uh, which is, like, full of awe. Like, this is, this is an awesome moment. It brings awe about we struggle with that because we don't often watch and see what's happening before us and realize so often how what's happening before us is God at work. And so we, we don't have that part of our uh, reflection, heart, translation. It's just such a difficult thing for us. And I think what we'll see as we get into these concluding parts of the Gospel of John, John goes through chapter 21 is that as we go through John in these last one, two, three, four, five pages of it, in my Bible, as we go through these last five pages of the Gospel of John, I think what we're going to see more and more is just how awesome Jesus is. And here, here's what I mean by that, is that now, as the, the narrative continues, you're going to see with a more dramatic pace just how different Jesus is compared to those around him. You're going to see how he operates that is different to how anybody else could operate. We're going to see how he stands when nobody else could stand. We're going to see how he identifies who he is when no one else wanted to identify with him. We're going to see how uh, when he's questioned and beaten, he still just goes, I've said who I am and I've testified about who I am. And so we're going to get into that the Gospel of John brings a few things into view, but he kind of slows down on the Pilate hearing a little bit, which is the Pontius Pilate hearing, which is not, you know, it's less the, the, the Jewish hearing. And there are about six trials of Jesus, but there's really like a Roman trial and a Jewish trial, and they happen in different spaces and in different places throughout the end of the Gospels if you kind of piece them together. So we're not going to get all of those in one, but we're going to kind of see both the Jewish trial and the Roman trial uh, but the first thing that has to happen to fulfill Scripture and for Jesus to do what he's doing is that he will be betrayed. I want to ask this question, and we're going to keep asking it, but how does Jesus do what we never could? I mean, the answer is obvious, but I think as we see it put into the Gospel of John, it'll just, the contrast will become more stark. My hope for us is that maybe we could gain a little bit of awe that we could actually be amazed by what Jesus has done, be impressed by it, be, be uh, struck by it in such a way that it, it, it changes us. It just makes us realize how great he is.
That's really what I want. Not even how great he is, now little you are, right? You already think little of yourself, but like how great he is. Let's just, let's just focus on that. And so, right, like we'll keep looking at that over these next few weeks. John breaks up into really two sections. Book of Signs is what people call it. That's not what John called it, but the Book of Signs, which can be the first 12-ish, 11 or 12, depending on what you do in chapter 12, uh, where he's doing work and he's, he's, he's demonstrating who he is. And then there's the Book of Glory. Well, the Book of Glory, really, for the first, for 13 through 17, is just Jesus talking to his disciples in the upper room. And then 18, 19, 20, and 21 is where Jesus begins to demonstrate at the cross both the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion and the resurrection. Those 18 through 21, and as John tells us, the resurrection accounts that happened post-resurrection. As we see these items, we get to see just how different Jesus is. So glory, God on display, God demonstrated for us, we get to see it. And what we'll see right now in chapter 18 are these contrasts. So that's what we're going to look at, uh, is we're going to see the differences of Jesus as he is betrayed, as he's asked to say who he is. We're even going to see it in his action. We're going to see it in our inaction, which is Peter. And Peter's like, I'm going to chop an ear off. Like, that seems right. In fact, the fourth and fifth grade class today, they get to practice chopping ears off um, and so that'll be cool. But it's, it's, it's with balloons and Play-Doh, so uh, that'll be all right. Um, but that's what we get to see. So we're going to just march through it, and, and some of it's going to be a reminder of where we've been. And, John, it's been a while. And if you don't attend all the time and you haven't been to all however many thousand John sermons, then we're going to connect them together and kind of point some things out and, and remind us of what Jesus was doing so that what he's doing in 18 is different. Uh, but that's what we're going to start at. So just very quickly, I'm going to give you these, uh, these ideas. So we're going to start in verses 1 through 3. The son betrayed, right? Like that's what we're going to see. We're going to see him betrayed. And this is Judas doing what Judas was really appointed to do, which is betray the son. We remember from the beginning of the account, the Last Supper, Jesus with his disciples, Judas gets out. Jesus says, what you're doing, do quickly. And Judas leaves. And the disciples are like, is he getting more food? That's really, remember, that's what they thought. Is he getting more food? You know, like, like, we want to be sure there's enough food for what we're doing throughout the, not just the Passover meal, but the, they say observe the Passover. They often mean the, the entire week of festivities and the, the, and the festival that comes right after it. And so observe the Passover, observe this time. And so we got to be sure we have enough food. So that's what they thought he was doing. But now Judas is showing back up on the scene. Look at verses 1 through 3. Jesus had spoken these words. He just finished praying, if we remember that. So chapter 17 ends with his prayer. He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Not just a crowd, but like we get to see lanterns so they could see because it was night, and torches so they could see because it was night, and weapons just in case. Now, there are both Jewish leaders and Roman leaders who are a part of this army. And we don't actually know the official number of how many were there, but there were a lot a lot of people coming for one person. A lot of people coming for one person. That's how big of a deal this was in this world. But the first thing I want us to see as Jesus is betrayed is first, how, do we, how did Judas know he was there? John says he's been there a while, but if you look in Luke, you actually get to figure that out 
Uh, this is in Luke 21. Every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. This is across the Kidron Valley. The Mount of Olives is over there um, on the east side, uh, looking out on the east side of the temple. And so the Kidron Valley comes down, the Mount of Olives. You can see it. I mean, it's not far. And so you can be on the Temple Mount and see the Mount of Olives. It's it just right across the valley. But what would happen is when so many people were in Jerusalem for the Passover, they would need a place to stay. Not everybody could stay in the city. And so they would go through the day and they would have their festivities and, they, and Jesus would be teaching. And then at night, they would go, and go to their campground. And their campground was at the Mount of Olives. So Judas knew exactly where he would be. He knew exactly where he would be at this week and in this time. But here's what's interesting because if you followed us to the Gospel of John to this point, John makes no, uh, makes no deal about Jesus hiding from people or leaving. Hiding might be the wrong word, but leaving. I mean, look, Jesus withdraws quite a bit and hides from crowds. After feeding the 5,000 in John 6, 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So people looking for him, he goes away. John 7, 1, right after that. After this, Jesus went about Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So what changes between 6 and 7 and where we are in 18? John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. After the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So we see a, a, a marked shift in Jesus' ministry, whereas in these first 11 chapters, Jesus is not trying to be seen. When people want to make him king, he's not interested. When people want him to die, he gets away from them. But now that his time has come, where is he? He is in the most known place that he would be in Jerusalem. He's right there. He would know that Judas would know this. He would know where they would be looking for him. Right? Like if you're ever looking for me, the best place to go is to my house at night. The best shot you have of finding me if you don't know where I am and you don't have like the find my iPhone thing for me, right? Like the best place you can be is at my house. And so they say, well, we know where he is. He's lodging. We're going to go where he's lodging. So now you see the difference. Jesus, for the first portion of his ministry up until the end, he is staying away from crowds. He's pushing the crowds off. When people want to kill him, he's not that interested. And now we have this shift in chapter 18, where they're looking for him, and he's front and center. But it's not just that in his betrayal, it's, it's this, is that the son was betrayed, Judas betrayed him, but that also, we see in this verses 4 through the first half of verse 8, is that the son is not hiding. Go, it builds right off of what we see in verses 1 through 3. So Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, John has never made any any issue of Jesus' being God, knowing what would happen to him, said to them, whom do you seek? Like he didn't know. You know. Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. 
Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. We've already seen that Jesus has not hidden his location. And now he has no issue hiding his identity. He's like, you know where I am, and you know who I am. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth? I am that one. Now, that's the first identity that John gives us. Remember, John is full of ironies. In fact, in two weeks, we're going to see these ironies on full display at Jesus' trial in, at the end of chapter 18, the first part of Jesus' trial. But there's a, another identity that Jesus is giving here, and I think there's an irony that John wants us to know, and Jesus already said, before Abraham was, I am. We saw that in 858. Now Jesus says, again, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. What's his reply? I am he. And notice what happens when he says that. When he says that, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, here's the deal. Jesus has never been, and we, we know this from Isaiah, he has like no, no, no uh, look that we would gaze upon him. We recognize Jesus probably wasn't like, he wasn't a brawler, if I were to put it like that. Okay? And so, for a crowd of people, I mean, just imagine, you come here and you're like, who are you looking for? You're like, we're looking for, you know, the pastor who preaches usually. And I go, I'm he. Like, how many of you, if this whole crowd shows up and does that with torches and lanterns and weapons, how many of you, when I say that, are going to fall backwards and fall to the ground? Like, oh, like, what am I going to do? I can't do anything. And yet John is letting us know when this statement was made, there was some kind of physical effect that it had on those who were there at the front lines. Like, they, st- they step back and they fall to the ground. Again, one of those John ironies where he's showing us how Jesus operates, how man operates, and there's such a difference. I am he. Jesus lets them know who he is as Jesus of Nazareth. John, in that, lets us know who he is as the I am Now, here's what happens as he does this. Again, through the first half of eight. In this moment, Jesus, we have him betrayed by Judas. We have him not hiding when they're asked who he is. But then we have him protecting. Remember how he talks about how the the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep? Remember that that, that phrase that Jesus makes? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep? Now, at a time when everyone is looking for Jesus with torches and lanterns and weapons, there might be a time where his disciples would try to get in front of that. Peter tries and fails. But of all the times in the history of one's life, when everyone's looking for them to falsely accuse someone of something, that might be the time that everybody else bows up and says, no, 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 hey, hold on, hold on. I know you want Jesus, but he hasn't done anything wrong. There's nothing wrong here. But this is what happens 
instead. Jesus flips the script on how this goes. Everyone's looking for Jesus, but not everybody might know who he is. And if you're attached to Jesus, maybe you're a problem too. And so Jesus does something unique in the second half of 8 and 9. He says, I'm he, so if, the second half of eight, you seek me, let these men go. He says this about his disciples. If you're looking for me, let these men go. Now, this, John lets us know, was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one or lost not one. Sorry, sometimes the ESV is backwards in its language and I just put it in the other order. In a moment of intensity, Jesus with his disciples, and his disciples, if we are kind of familiar with the timing, could be asleep, certainly a little disinterested in what's going on, maybe not the most intense in the moment, but they're attached to Jesus and that's a problem. And what does Jesus say? If you're looking for me, let these folks go. And at a time where Jesus or the disciples could be like, no, 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 hey, let's let's cover Jesus, which they won't do. Jesus chooses to protect them. He chooses to cover them. All of this is foreshadowing the work that he was always here to do, which is to die for the sins of many. And even in his statement, if you're looking for me, let them go, is him covering his disciples in that moment. He draws attention to himself to protect his disciples. It's a precursor to the cross, looking to the Son to avoid the consequences that might come upon them. Jesus always protects his sheep. That's the first thing that we see there. But there's something interesting that happens too. If you're familiar with reading the Gospels, you might have a a comfort with this phrase, this was done to fulfill. But do you see a difference in verse 9? Just look at it. This was to fulfill the word that who spoke? He had spoken. Now we're getting something interesting in how John is telling us about Jesus. That Jesus is saying things in his ministry, and John's letting you know that in Jesus doing certain things, he's fulfilling his own words. He's fulfilling his own words. So what do we see there? Well, go back to John chapter 17. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The reason I think we're going back to John 17 is because this is the post-Judas prayer. Judas has left the scene, and now we have Jesus with his disciples, and John is letting us know he said this to fulfill what he had just spoken. And so now, now, now... If I do something, if I say something, hey, tomorrow we're going to go do X, Y, and Z, and we do that, you're not going to be like, oh my gosh, Hans fulfilled the words that he had spoken. You're not going to have this view of me, which is like, all of a sudden, you're so impressed, but look at what Jesus does. Jesus, who in that moment actually doesn't have, in an earthly sense, doesn't seem to have a lot of 
things in his favor, doesn't have a lot of chips that he can use to barter with a crowd that wants to get rid of him. And yet still, when he says, let them go, they're protected. This was said to fulfill, this was to fulfill what he had spoken, that Jesus protects those who are his. Salvation is a gift of God, and it's held together by God. And so often we forget that what happens really does come by God and is held together by God as well. There's still this part of us that so often thinks that it's our, uh, we could say, our, our work, our performance. We just have to do enough good things so that Jesus is like, you know what, I do want you on the team. Like, I'd pick you last, but come on. There's that part of us that's performative and feels as if we need to prove ourselves to God. And yet what we see here is Jesus protecting his disciples when his disciples still, let's, just, let's not forget this, his disciples still don't really have a clue. They're still unaware of what's going on. They still don't recognize all the things that he is fulfilling or all the ways that this is working. They're still kind of lost with it all. Yes, Jesus has taught them. Yes, Jesus has instructed them. Yes, Jesus has, has said, this is what this means, and this is what's going on. And they've had, you know, they've had like a front row seat at all of Jesus' explanations of his parables. They have been able to say, hey, what does this mean? They're walking on the road. What do you mean by this? And what does this mean? They've had all of that, and still so often what happens, but boom, a clear confusion about what is going on. And even in that, at a moment when the disciples maybe should stand firm, at a moment where the disciples should be, be stepping in, where maybe everything should be the most clear for them. Right? It seems like everything's kind of hitting as Jesus said it would happen, and he's taught us, and he's prayed for us, all this stuff, and he just prayed for them in John 17 that they might be one. And what are they doing? Not very much. And Jesus protects them at that moment too. He protects us at those moments. When we don't really feel like a good disciple, which is so often, we don't feel like we're walking in the right way, or we don't feel like we're obedient, or we, like in all of those things, what's happening? Jesus is still protecting his sheep. He's still protecting his sheep. And yet there's this reminder of who we are the misunderstanding disciple. I see a lot of me and you and us in the Apostle Peter. Not the, really the Apostle Peter as we talked to him in this point in time, but like, yeah, in Peter. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Not his left ear, his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Often people would say these little details about right ear or the servant's name are, are things that John adds, not even maybe thinking about it, that help us to have confidence in the historicity of the gospel. Cuts off his right ear. And his, he had a name. And his name was Malchus. Now, we can't go back in time and go, well, who was the servant of the high priest that year? Like, we don't, we don't have the records to go back and do that. We think anybody who's reading that could have gone, that wasn't Malchus. 
right? But like, I, you can imagine like maybe Malchus has a, uh, a grandson. We'll just make this up for a second. And like, no, that totally happened, right? Like, if we actually read later in another gospel that Jesus puts it back on. Like, they're like, just just cuz, right? Here he is in the moment. It's like, oh, yep, bam. Like, like, it is, like, no glue needed, just son of God, bam, put the ear right back on. Now, this is, this is why what Peter does is so common to what we do, which is totally miss the point. Totally miss the point. Now, we would all do the same thing. We have the benefit of hindsight. Benefit of hindsight says, well, in that moment, what Peter could have done was go, this is going to be really hard, Jesus, but we, are, we recognize that this has to happen. And, and we don't even know what that means or how we're going to do it. But we, we recognize your, like, like hindsight says, yeah, you could have played this out differently. But in the heat of battle, in the moment when everybody's there, and when you see a crowd coming against Jesus, and you know Peter's the one who's like, no one's ever going to deny you. I won't do that. Well, he's about to. And no, like, you can't die. They won't. Like, this guy who has this level of confidence about his ability to protect Jesus, it's like, you know what I'm going to do with all these people around? I'm going to chop off a dude's ear. I mean, can you imagine, like, after that happens and the adrenaline dies down and you just go, shoot. Because you can't go anywhere. Like, you just have the crowd with torches and lanterns and weapons standing around. You have your sword. You chop off a dude's ear. You're kind of outnumbered. And it's kind of those what was I thinking moments. We all have them. What was I thinking? You weren't. Yes, yeah. You weren't thinking. He wasn't thinking. And this is the thing about walking with Jesus, which is just so great. It's that so often we miss it. We screw it up. We're confused. We misunderstand. We look. We read. We go, oh, yeah, this is what it means. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means about to, to be serious about our faith. This, this is what it's like. And then Jesus has to come behind us, like, in the wake of everything we've done and pop the dude's ear back on because he's like, I just, you guys. And so, like, Jesus is even cleaning up our best efforts, which are misguided. Right? Like, he still has to fix it. And that's just always great. I love that. I, I, I've said this before a couple of times with you guys, but, like, I love sometimes I pray things and I'm confident that, like, Jesus fixes on the way up, right? Like, he's, he's still interceding. And he's like, well, Father, I think what Hans really meant <laughs> was this, right? Like, like, just, you know, you know like, like, and you, that's just how I sometimes feel about how the Lord is working because he has to come behind me and make it make sense. He has to come behind me and fix all the stuff we've screwed up. And here's the thing. I don't want you as a disciple of Jesus to have any fear about obeying him or any fear about screwing it up. Let him cover it. Let him be the center of attention. He's already in this in two occasions. First, I guess we could say three, he's not hiding anymore. He knows his time has come, and so he's right there in the middle of it. I'm who you are looking for. So let everybody else go. And then when Peter does what he's doing, pops the ear back on, but in John we get his language accepting the cup that is before him, the son accepting. Look at verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, 
Put your sword into its sheath. Put it back. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is our Savior. When the disciples are freaking out, Peter's taking things into his own hands, Jesus, in the midst of this crowd, coming to get him with torches and lanterns and weapons. And remember, he has none. He protects his disciples. He looks at Peter, put your weapon away. And again, he takes the responsibility for what's about to happen. Should I not take the cup the Father has given me? John doesn't give us a prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that we, would, we, we see in other Gospels, where Jesus is praying, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass before me, but yet not my will, but yours be done. But we see the back end of that. We see the back end of that where he says to Peter, should I not take this cup? He knows it's coming. He knows it will not pass. And so he recognizes and goes, I'm going to take this cup. And what we would see in the language of cup is that cup of suffering. Should I not take this cup? What we see here is Jesus' submissive, voluntary acceptance of his suffering. He is willing he is not hiding. He is protecting. He's not hiding behind. And he takes what is before him. <clears throat> I think this is why for us, marveling, being in awe, is so important. Because you put yourself into this situation and you're going to be in one of three spots. I'll give you a fourth. One of four spots. You're going to be Peter, the one who tries to take things into your own hands because you're so confident on your knowledge of what's happening. So you could be that guy, doofus that you are. You can be the other disciples who we really just don't know what's going on, but we know that they had been sleeping. You could be in the crowd ready to arrest Jesus. And that fourth category would be, you could be anybody else in Jerusalem at that time disinterested in what's going on. Anybody else in any part of the world disinterested in what's going on. Just aloof and unconcerned about it. But the place you will not be is in the place of Jesus, because only one stands then. The work that you would not do is that work of Jesus. The confidence that you would not have is the confidence of Jesus, both in the timing and in the suffering that is to come. That's why, as we look at Jesus, we can just go, who else? Who else would have done this? Who else would have, who else would have willingly, submissively laid down his life? Not you, not me, but him. So, so what do we do with that? I, I know of no other thing that we can do but to be glad. 
to be glad that it happened and that Jesus did it. Then all of these moments to be like, well, I'm not really sure. You know, the lawyer shows up and like, Jesus, I think we can get you out of this. Like, we can, we can plead to a lower offense and, and we can get you home by, you know, the next Passover. Like, it's not a big deal. I think we can take care of that. Right? He's going, no. No, I'm going to stand. I'm going to declare. And what do we do? I think we just stand in awe. We look at the work of Jesus and we'd be glad. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus... This is him on display. The one who says, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. You can't do anything about it. I mean, we really can't. He stands firm. I have this reminder for myself. Maybe it'd be good for you too, because I'm a little dense. Not saying you are. Just saying if you are. And you are. I have this reminder for myself that I fail to recognize, but I just have it there, and it just kind of pings at me on the daily, which is this, be in awe. And and what that really takes for me, and probably for you as well, is to step back and to just look. You know, when when John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we go, yeah, that's kind of cool. He's kind of, like, but then you see just what this Lamb of God does throughout his ministry. And even in this moment, when the crowds are looking for him, and he stands. Who are you looking for? You'll see this next week. Or Or really, I guess next week and the week after. When they're questioning who he is. And he's just like, I haven't hidden anything about who I am. You can ask me who I am, or you know what? You could ask anybody else who's heard me teach. Ask them. They'll tell you. Pontius Pilate asks him, are you a king? He goes, are you asking me because you're curious or somebody told you to ask? And he doesn't even hide that. He says, my kingdom's not of this world. So Pilate's like, oh, so you are a king. You will see throughout chapter 18 that Jesus just stands and declares who he is. He doesn't hide from what's to come. And I think for us, we need to look at it. Rejoice, be glad. Recognize that it wouldn't have been us. And then, for anybody here who doesn't know Jesus, let the sacrifice of Jesus be your protection. May what he has done for so many in this room be the same for you, which is to say, have nothing, don't worry about them. The work of Jesus for you and for me is that. Where all of my sin and all of my shame and all of my guilt, everything that I do, I bring nothing to the table. And Jesus says to the Father, look at me. And the work of Jesus becomes my work. 
his sacrifice becomes what is there. And so if that hasn't been you this morning, I, I know so many people in this room who would love for you to take that, take what Jesus offers, which is that covering. The one who every time, and this is what is so great about what he says about the disciples, leave them alone, have nothing to do with them. This is what's so great about that, is that even in our best moments, you and I might have, for the, the relationship that you love the most, the person you care about the most, even in your best moment, you will not stand a hundred times out of a hundred or a thousand times out of a thousand. At some point in time, you'll go, that's enough. That's enough. And Jesus never does that. Even in this moment, when Peter chops off a dude's ear to try and prove a point, I guess. Jesus uses it in that moment with the crowds around to instruct Peter. Where I would have gone, hey, you know what, let's just heal the dude. I don't have time to explain to you why that was a bad decision. That's what we often do with our kids. I don't have time to tell you why that was stupid, but it was. We'll talk about it later. Just be quiet. Let's get home. But Jesus doesn't do that. Even with Peter. I would have been tired of Peter by now. Can you, Peter, can you find a new church? Like, <clears throat> maybe there's another church where you could, like, people would like you more for a little while longer. And... But he just says, I'm going to take the cup of suffering, Pete. This is what I'm going to do. Put your sword away. This isn't your battle to fight. And we get to rejoice in that. We get to rejoice in that. That's what I hope we are able to do. Even sometime this week, if you would just take, I'm telling you, two minutes. Two minutes. You could set a timer so you could go on to your next important thing. But two minutes where you would just look at what Jesus has done. And think about it. Consider it. And rejoice that he did it. That's the hope.